Get ready for some mind-blowing business insights because today we've got a powerhouse joining us on This Week with Sabir. Meet Isaiah Syed, co-founder and CEO of MEND. He's a tech and innovation prodigy who's played a key role at Deloitte, City, and a bunch of other high-growth startups. He's revolutionizing the life sciences and health tech industry with MEND in the heart of New York City. And we are dying to know more about his epic journey to the top and MEND's cutting-edge work. Isaiah, welcome to the show. Thank you, Sabir, for having me. We're really excited and looking forward to the conversation. Definitely. So I, I, I said a, a lot of great things in that bio, but could you could you give us a, a brief introduction to your impressive background and how it led uh, to you to uh, co-founding uh, MEND? Yeah, and thank you for the for the kind words. And I'm very, very humbled by it. Um, you know, I've got a a long career, both as an entrepreneur as well as kind of um, you know, being in the corporate realm, really going deep into my passion, which is you know, ultimately innovation. How do you think about uh, white spaces, new opportunities, and really changing the world? So, you know, I started very early, um, way back in kind of 96. Um, I actually went and worked for, while I was doing my undergraduate degree, worked for an agency, an agency that at that time had actually gone completely digital and asked him to come as a, speak as a keynote um, to our to our school, our practice and apologize. One of the things you'll get in New York City is, is sirens. So if you're hearing that, <laughs> having a I know, I know. I, I, I live in Queens, you know, and I live near a hospital. <laughs> By the way, we're talking about healthcare. You know, <laughs> I live near a hospital. And sometimes when when the when the traffic gets backed up, uh, the ambulance actually passes right by my house. You know? So you, you yeah. might hear some of it on my end, too. Okay. So I, I just fell in love with the when I went and met with the principals, um, you know, they had a, a sign hanging on the back wall. It was all about imagination and passion and um, changing the world and fell in love with the environment and said, look, I really need to work here. Um, how do I do that? And they didn't have a role. And, and so I envisioned that they could create a, a marketing research uh, role within the firm. And that's really how my career started is kind of creating a, a research function within within a digital agency. From there, I started our, my first software company and then have been really kind of like deeply immersed in the technology space and everything from web to hardware to, um, you know, now in, 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 in life sciences, but also in the fintech realm. And um, I deliberately decided to take in a role in kind of larger firms to understand what is it that large firms do really well so that when I um, you know, became an entrepreneur again, which is something that I've always aspired to do, I could take all the learnings from a big environment like a Citibank and a Deloitte um, and bring that back into the entrepreneurial realm. So it was very fortunate that when I was at Deloitte, you know, doing kind of big shift domain stuff, really thinking about, I mean, I was one of the first people at Deloitte to kind of really think about blockchain and what that meant for uh, for for business and our clients, and started our, you know our task forces. Um, you know, I was very fortunate that Deloitte understood that I was an entrepreneur at heart and gave me some latitude to kind of start to really tinker and toy on um, you know on meant and, and the problem that I was seeing. And so um, you know here I am today um, you know, working on this full time. Amazing. So how did the concept of uh, men come about and, and what problem does it aim to like solve uh, for the consumers? You know, I think it started probably germinating for me. A lot of times ideas come and uh, start to germinate before you're even aware of them, before they kind of bubble up to your level of awareness. And for me, you know, my mom got cancer, unfortunately, roughly yeah, 10, 15 years ago. Um, 
yeah, I was in her apartment um, and I heard her kind of come in the front door and kind of whisper it to her brother who was also over there. And, and um, she proceeded to reveal you know, to me that she'd gotten cancer and she had to have a full mastectomy and you know, the chemo and all that kind of stuff. And I saw not only who she became as a person physically, she was, you know, very beaten up by the process, um, but also the the journey she was on in terms of the level of care that she got. Um, and again, it didn't, you know, strike me at that time, kind of, you know, there was a problem for me to solve. But then um, kind of fast forward 10 years, my brother, who's a one's three physical therapy practices here in New York City, he fell from Catterskill Falls, uh, which is the highest waterfall in New York State. It's two tiers. It's a beautiful place. If you haven't been there and you're in New York, it's worth checking out. Be cautious because it is it can be treacherous. And so he fell from there and, uh, you know, make a long story short, he had roughly eight, nine surgeries to repair his body. Wow. Fairly long, you know, physical therapy uh, process. In fact, they were going to amputate his arm. And the doctor said, geez, this guy's a physical therapist. And if I cut his arm off, that's not going to you know, do good things for his life and his career. So thanks to him for really taking what little material was remaining in his elbow and, and, and fix, it, fix his arm. But I saw his care journey and literally I was at home kind of treating his arm. The wounds were pretty extensive and I'm sure it germinated there some more. And then finally, I think the, the straw that broke the camel's back was I had a stress fracture that was very slow to heal. I was training for the New York Marathon and um, I was still experiencing pain in my feet and like in my foot, left foot at like week nine. And typically stress fractures of that nature heal in kind of four to six weeks. So I went back to my podiatrist frustrated because I'm an active person and I was dying to get back to running. I said, this is not healing and I'm still experiencing pain. And he did scans and showed in fact that the bone wasn't fully healed. And I said, what should I have been doing? What should I do now? And his response was go home and rest because healing is different for every person. And some people heal faster and some people you know, take longer. But I've been an athlete all my life and I eat healthy. What's going on here, right? So I was frustrated my way back and I just had this intuition that perhaps I was nutritionally compromised. There was something missing from my body. Some of the core building blocks of what's responsible in healing, something wasn't fueling the process correctly. So I immediately went home and I Googled nutrition for healing. And I came across an article from Hospital for Special Surgery who were you know, thrilled and privileged to be working with right now in the best, best of the best. Um, and it was called nutrition for healing. And it proceeded to talk about how in any type of trauma, whether it's a minor trauma like my stress fracture or a major surgery, or even in, uh, you know, the, the types of things that we experience, um, you know, kind of daily, your body's metabolic demands increase, you know, body's working harder, right? Needs a lot of energy to dedicate to repairing that trauma. And so these articles were invariably talking about the 10 to 15 or 20 foods you need to eat to optimize healing, which is really well-intentioned advice, but it's advice that nobody can utilize. I, mean, I wasn't going to go to Trader Joe's, which is just a block away from my apartment and buy those 15 foods, and I'm pretty conscientious, um, just to support my healing. So the question that popped into my head was, you know, is there an opportunity for a medicine-like nutrition product that developed the same science and the rigor and the understanding of the metabolic pathways and, you know, the healing pathways involved that could be utilized in acute care to support the needs of the body in any type of uh, an acute setting? And so really that's how MEND was born. And as I started to reflect on my mom's journey and my brother's journey, um, it was about more than that. It was more about more than just what you ingest. It's about the continuum of care and extending it. So you think about kind of the hospital environment today, when you go in for some sort of acute need, they do a fantastic job in the hospital. At least most do. Certainly the great hospitals do. 
Uh, they've got all the tools, techniques, and knowledge to give you a superior experience there. But healing starts before that. There's a whole set of needs before you get into the acute care environment. There's a whole set of needs after. And so what MEND is really endeavoring to do is you know, really extend the continuum of care to before and after so that we ensure that you're getting the best possible outcomes and best possible experience. And that's what we are today. You know, it's, it's, I, I, I speak with so many founders and so many entrepreneurs, and I'm always amazed at like how nature or faith or universe, right, throws these experiences at us, right? And the thing is, as long as we are aware of these experiences and, and take it and do something with it, like in your case, you, 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 the experience with your mom or your brother or yourself, that you took it and you turned it into something that not only benefits you, it benefits others. Some people are paralyzed with, with those kind of challenges you just mentioned. Those are not easy challenges, uh, let alone to act on it to create something like MEND. You know? Yeah, I think I think that that kind of um, you know personal, very deeply personal experience is what anchors you and what you know is kind of the mantra of of you know startups in the business world today, right? Is deeply deep conviction and passion. Like just be be really really immersed in your in your passion and anchored in that because this startup stuff is hard stuff, as you know, Sabir. It's 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 not uh, it's not a walk in the park, and you're going to be challenged every other day. And so if you have that anchoring purpose, you know, a very deeply personal experience that got you to hear, got you to want to solve for this problem that you've encountered. That's what takes you through the difficult days. And for me, you know, I love what I do. Uh, I, I don't wake up in the morning seeing my job as a chore and I could work 24, 24 hours on it because I reflect back on my mom, reflect on my brother. And obviously the numerous people that I've seen have various healthcare challenges. And it's all about that. It's all about solving for that. So you have this uh, in, your, in this part of your journey. Now you have a seed of an idea, right? Yeah, you want to do something with it. So t- take me through the process of like building and launching because that's not an easy process. Like, well, you know, I, you know I, I don't know. I have a wife, you know, she went through pregnancy. Uh, and in, in her case, and lucky for us, we had twins. So it was not one kid, it was two kids in there, you know. Uh, and it took nine months just to, to produce human beings, right? And I believe that when you when you're working with on a seed of an idea, uh, you go through that all of those kind of phases of birth. Uh, so how how was yours when it comes to you, meant? Yeah, and I you know one of the things that I I knew that you know someday that I would benefit from um, all the experience that came before. So it's pretty deliberate in my career and in working in different functional areas. I, I went and deliberately worked in e-business when I was at Citibank. I worked in cross-sell. I worked in, you know, I understand finance. I went and took an advanced finance course at NYU because I wanted to understand the finance side of things, evaluation and how the startups get funded, work in marketing, et cetera. And so I knew that, um, that for there to be a there there, that I needed to do some early validation, right? So I had a concept and a hunch and hunches are great because the hunches are really a magical thing. They come from, um, a whole bunch of experiences that you already had that, you know, there's a, there's a alchemy and a, and an equation happening within you that you're not even aware of. And so I had this hunch that this was big, but I needed to go and validate that hunch. And that's really the first thing you want to do is, is the business person you says, this is a problem and it should be big, but let me see if there's a real problem here. And so I immediately went and began to validate my thesis with, you know, whoever I could speak to that was far more informed in this area than I am, right? So I'm not a doctor, I'm not a nutritionist. 
So how do I get validation from people that have stature and understanding and have experience that could validate that there's a problem here? So through my brother, because he gets referrals from uh, physicians, one of the first people I spoke to was Dr. Marks at the Hospital for Special Surgery, you know, a very statured, um, incredible surgeon um, at, at, at that institution. And I sat with him for 30 minutes. It was obviously a privilege that he gave me his time because he's a busy guy. And I told him what I had experienced and the problem that I came across. And he said, look, I don't generally work with many people. I get a lot of opportunities come my way, but this is a problem that needs to be solved. Good, great validation, right? Then I went and spoke to Lauren Antonucci, who's a very acclaimed uh, nutritionist in New York City, kind of national level stature. As I always see this all the time. In fact, I had a bunch of orthos talking to me about this very problem. So lots of early validation to say, okay, there's a problem that needs to be solved. And then, of course, you know, it's the hard work of, okay, who will listen to you to give you a little bit of capital so you can actually get this baby off the ground. And so, you know, it's, it's about talking to people with real, one of the things I want to encourage anyone who's thinking about, you know, starting and launching an idea is have deep, deep conviction and passion about it because that comes through. I'm hearing that all the time. Because I, when I hear you talking about MEND, your passion comes through. And that's what's, um, you know, apart from being a smart business person and doing the homework and building the validation and the data points, your passion is going to come through. So I've taken the company through a pretty traditional kind of cycle in terms of seed funding from friends and family, you know, up until, you know, angels to give us a little bit more money and then through institutionals. And now we're at the, at the point of taking our you know, series A round of funding. Um, we've got some really high caliber investors coming in to lead the round. Uh, that'll set us up for you know whatever comes next but it's been a fairly traditional path of validation and proof points giving you enough to get the next person convinced to give you a little bit of money and then so on and so forth yeah you know when you're going through uh these journeys uh, as a founder or a co-founder you know you have um obstacles some are easy obstacles and some are very tough obstacles right yeah. So in that building process, in the early building process, what were some of the like the tough obstacles that you that you faced and how did you handle them? Well, yeah, there's always obstacles and, and there are more than you'd like, unfortunately. Um, so, you know, uh, for us, one of one of the, the challenges, you know, we've been um, we have a unique business model and our business model is really about catering to and serving to the healthcare world and hospitals and doctors. And this is a very slow moving space. It doesn't change very fast. It has a very long sales cycle. And so um, one of the immediate challenges is, are you getting the velocity of adoption that you need to you know, prove out to your, to your investor base that you know, this is something that they should be investing in? And so there's a whole bunch of ways you can get validation without actually having, you know, the final purchase order. And so doing that, getting some of the early adopters, getting some of the validation through research and all of those to build kind of the business case and use case for, you know, why this is something that somebody should write you a check for um, uh, has been one of the things that we've had to overcome. And then of course, you know, being in um, a company that's really been starting up in COVID uh, where, Hospitals have been shut down by COVID. Elective surgeries have been shut down, which is one of the key things that we cater towards. Um, they've been allergic to cost because their business model and their PLs are being extremely challenged. And so, how do you how do you navigate that as a startup, right? So, well, one of the things that we we've done is um, you know very deliberately instead of 
uh, just focusing our energies on the large institutions is go after some smaller ones. They're able to move faster. They'll get you the PO faster. They're able to deploy faster. And it doesn't create the same sex appeal as a large hospital does, but boy, does it, um, you know, but does it validate your business and does it uh, start to move momentum? So one of the things I emphasize to my team is that momentum is a magical thing. And in anything, in sports, it's a magical thing. All of a sudden, you'll go on a 15-point run, and then you can't score a bucket for the next 20 minutes. It's also like that in the business world, amazingly, is that once momentum starts to build behind you, there's a, some gravitational forces that start to act on, in your favor. Uh, and so um, you know, we, we've had to navigate a number of challenges. Supply chain has been an enormous challenge for us in, in COVID. We're a product company. Uh, sometimes ingredients have been difficult. You know, plastic has run out. And so we have to circumvent and navigate those types of things. So um, it's one after another. Yeah. Uh, you know, it's interesting. Uh, you, you mentioned the word momentum. If for every client that I work with, uh, how they always ask me, how are we going to get there? How are we going to double our business, right? How are we going to triple our business 10x? Momentum. Weekly momentum. That's it. Absolutely. You have five days, five business days. If you work hard, you may want to work on the weekends, but let's call it five business days. Between today, Monday, and next Monday, we need to have momentum. Yeah. The faster momentum we have and the more learnings we get from it, we will make adjustments the following Monday. If things are going slow, then we're not making, we don't have momentum. And momentum means marketing campaigns, revenue, adjustments in creative, everything, everything. We need to have momentum. If we are at a standstill, nothing is going to happen. Absolutely. You look at a mountain and you go, Jesus Christ, how am I going to climb that mountain? But you break it up into discrete. How do I get the next 10 meters, right? Then it becomes not so daunting because you will make the next 10 meters. Um, and you create that that momentum getting the you know the first 10. All of a sudden, the, the mountain doesn't seem as large as it did when you look at it from a distance. So, yeah, absolutely. It's, it's an unbelievable thing. It creates a lot of energy. And like I said, gravitational forces as well is because uh, it's palpable to others. Um, you know, that's why I'm, I'm regular about making our, some of our successes visible because not only internally do our you know, people see it, but externally the market sees it. And uh, all of a sudden, you know, we're working on some really exciting partnerships with names that you all know, which we'll be announcing in the next you know, couple of weeks. These, these are big, big, big you know, behemoth firms. And they came to us. And they came to us because they know and they visibly see that, you know, Mend is doing something very unique in a space that is very important uh, and seems to be getting continuous market traction. So that's that's a super important thing. Yeah, I mean, in this part of the journey, you always are faced with um, tough decisions, right? Whether you pick the wrong co-founder, right? Or the first hire you did or the first five hires you did, bad idea, the wrong vendor, the wrong partnerships. Can you give real life examples in this part of the journey now that you had to make tough decisions? Yeah, and this is kind of more opportunistic, but it was nonetheless a very tough decision to make because it, it meant that I was going to be diluting a significant amount of my equity. Um, but we, I had an opportunity, you know, one of my co-founders is, is Justin Kmine and had an opportunity to kind of meet with him. He'd reach out to me to talk about our respective firms and we were on ultimately the same core mission which is you know to kind of solve some of these healthcare challenges and as we got to know each other we said you know, should we be competing in the market or should we be kind of doing this together uh, and we decided given you know our portfolio of products and our you know, the matching sort of talent in the firms that would be better to do this together 
um, because what we had together was formidable than you know what we had apart. But it came at a huge cost, you know, to my personal equity. I mean, imagine like you're losing fifty percent of your equity. But I believe, Sabiria, that you know, a zero percent or one percent of something um, that's very small is far less compelling to me than 10% of something that's very big. So, you know, keeping your eye on the big picture, entrepreneurs get obsessed with uh, preventing dilution and maintaining as much equity as they can and control as they can. You know, that's not my philosophy. My philosophy is get a lot of really smart people together um, at the expense of some of your, some of your equity and, and build something big. And so I have no regrets about that decision. Um, It's worked out in our favor, we'll continue to work out in our favor because, you know, we're building a very good platform. Yeah, I mean, it's very logical, right? 100% of zero is still zero. <laughs> zero, yeah. And we get become so obsessed with, oh, I got to maintain as much equity as possible and control as possible. Well, good luck um, because there are, you know, this is a fast moving market and competition is fierce and you have to be fierce in your ability to compete. Uh, and uh, there's no better way to do that than to bring on a lot of smart, hungry people uh, that are on that journey with you and fighting fighting the fight with you. And so give up some equity. Uh, you're looking at something potentially much bigger. Earlier, you said that, you know, you, you as part of that journey, you, you wanted to go out and pitch to people so that you can get funding. Um, you know, the typical things are, uh, a family, friends. First, it's your personal credit cards and stuff. Then you go to family and friends and fools. You know that's FFF. Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. and then uh, people who who love you and they'll they'll give you anything. You know, uh, and then then you start going out and seeking outside funding. You know, how was your journey in in your case, and what kind of challenges did you face? You know, my very first check was actually just uh, you know a little bit serendipitous, and and I think. You know, part of what you want to do if you're in the early stage is, again, be really anchored deeply in your passion and do the homework to know that there's a there there. But then when you get an opportunity to speak about it. So I was with my cousin and we went for dinner here in New York City, her girlfriend and said, hey, I'm with this new guy that I'm seeing. Do you want to come by and kind of you know, join us for dinner? And so she said, because you want to go? And I said, sure, let's go. So we went and sat down and um, proceeded to talk and she whispered. You know, talk to him about your your concept, and so I did. And we didn't really discuss it much further. He just he just absorbed it as I spoke about it. Lo and behold, the next day he calls me. Never met this gentleman before, uh, Reza uh, Sabat, and he said, "Look, I really love what you're doing. I've been kind of deeply immersed in you know thinking about um, you know the elderly market and you know where demographics are going, and I think what you're doing is really important. Uh, I'd love to invest." Um, and, you know, then I proceeded to learn that he actually sat on a board for, you know, a firm that's very relevant to kind of what we're doing. So um, so that was my first. And then, you know, went out to others that um, are, um, you know, close to me personally and have confidence in, in you know, if, if nothing else, my obsession and tenacity to do to do what it is that I'm, I'm passionate about. Um, just kind of grew from there is just um, having you know, passionate conversations about the opportunity um, and being getting as much guys. One of the things I'll say to you, the listeners, is you know, build it, uh, build as much as you can on as little as you can, and that means you got to work your tail off to do as much as you. I was the marketing department, I was the operations department, I was writing copy, I was learning 
how to produce product at labs. There's no part of the firm that I didn't have to learn how to build from scratch. Um, and that meant long hours and meant it was um, draining. But again, for me, it was fun because it was something that I just I just loved and believed in. So, you know, it took the firm very far on very little. And that would be something that I would preach as a mantra is um, in the early days, you got to you got to take it as far as you can on as little as you can until you've got sufficient validation that serious investors will start to look at you. Um, you got to carry the weight on your shoulders and, and get it all done. I mean, I think that's one trait of, of uh, great founders, I think, is that you have to become a sponge for knowledge, right? I mean, I hear it time and time again from every founder that I've had here on, on, on the show. I mean, even if you look at even bigger examples like Elon Musk, you know, when he wanted to get SpaceX up, up and running or he wanted to get the new uh, gig factory in, in uh, Texas up and running, he was sleeping uh, in the office. He was not go even going home. You know, there was no home. That was home for him. That was it, you know. And he wanted to know every aspect of it to consume all of it. And, and I see that repeated over and over again with, with every founder. Like if you, if you don't know it, it's not like we are living in 1970s, right? Yeah. Right now, you could Google it. You can go on YouTube. Nowadays, I, there will be an episode coming up, by the way, audience. I'm going to talk about chat GPT and AI tools and how to use them on business in, in, in business. It's coming up soon. Yeah, so, I mean, I'll just give you a small example. Like I, I didn't know how barcodes are generated and how they end up on packaging. And there's a whole world around barcodes. And so I had to go and figure and learn that out. You know, how are barcodes generated even and how do they get onto packaging? So yeah, there's like every little nuance and every little FDA thing. labeling requirements, compliance. You gotta learn all of it. <laughs> Yeah. Um, and you got to not only learn all of it, you got to execute on it. Um, but it's, it's fantastic because, you know, there isn't a piece of the business that I don't know now. Um, a single piece of it that uh, I don't personally know, I haven't personally touched and had to execute on myself. So we have the concept, we, we build it, we launch it, and you have this amazing dinner, uh, serendipitous dinner with your cousins. Uh, you know, this, this guy, she, I don't know if she's in a relationship with him now, but, uh, and then, he happen, happens to be uh, your first investor. Yeah. So you got the money now. The next thing is to now get the word out, right? Uh, so, and you mentioned that you wore a lot of different hats, marketing operations and so on. If we pick on marketing, uh, how did you craft your message and how did you craft your branding to say that this is who we are? And, and what, what kind of a specific strategy did you deploy? Because in, in, in the early stages, you're also learning, right, about yourself as who is meant and and what are you, what do you stand for? Yeah, and I, and I um, you know I had the benefit of kind of being a you know business undergrad and MBA and all that kind of stuff. So I knew a little bit of marketing. I'd worked in um, in an agency and started a market research department and launched a number of products. So you know I, I kind of understood the the core fundamentals of how do you craft you know a, a, you know a core message around a value proposition and then how do you test for it? You know, with limited resources, right? You're you think about it, you're your first couple of checks are $10,000, $5,000, not a lot of money to go out and do a big market research uh, campaign. But one of the things I've also learned, Sabir, and that I'll you know, kind of share with the, the audience is it kind of depending where, where you are in your, in your career trajectory and um, your career path, there's actually a really fascinating study done out of, um, I think it was the Netherlands, a bunch of academics looked at decision-making in the face of an abstract problem or an ill-defined problem where there isn't a discrete answer. There's a world or universe of potential answers. 
And what they concluded from the study was that, uh, you know, this whole sort of mantra of database decision-making, analytical decision-making um, wasn't superior to actually to instinct and hunch uh, in the case of, you know, experienced uh, executives, that your body of experience uh, is, is already giving you insights and a way to do things that you need to learn to trust more and rely on. And so, um, so, so I did a lot of the original crafting of, you know, the core messaging and value proposition myself, and then just understood, I guess, maybe intuitively that if I wanted to break into medicine, that I really need to align myself with the key opinion leaders in medicine, you know, the Dr. Marxists of the world that could provide me not only counsel and guidance um, on kind of how to shape my idea, but then at the appropriate time could help get the word out. Right. So it's cultivating the right KOL relationships early on, in my case, um, which has now become a vast network. I'm in orthopedics, very strong in orthopedics, this vast network of the most important orthopedic surgeons in the country that said have said to me along the way, you're doing this the right way, which is build the science. They, they value science, they value research, they value an evidence based approach. And so I've gotten that early guidance and counsel is to invest in the evidence-based approach and do it the right way and earn the respect of the, uh, of the, you know, the people in the industry that really matter and then utilize them then to help get the word out. And that's been you know, more valuable to me than any dollar I could have spent online on an ad um, uh, or, or, you know, some sort of, uh, you know, a campaign to, to reach, uh, to reach the audience. It's, this is a very, in medicine, it's a very close-knit, tight community. In orthopedics, they all know each other, literally. Um, and so managing these, these relationships very carefully to ensure that they know we're real about science, they know we're real about evidence, and that we're real about the quality of our approach, and, and that will translate over time into, into um, market traction. So... Um... One thing that I've I've learned is in in, in any organization that um, the first like fifteen to twenty people that you hire, I mean, it's first it's the first five people, then it's the first ten people, then it's like fifteen to twenty is is the magical area that starts defining the culture of a company, right? And and culture is really important. If you don't have it, people develop their own culture and and that's you if you don't control it then it may turn into a mess you know into a gigantic mess that you won't be able to uh, recover from it or it may take a long time to recover from it so given in in this early stage you have all these things going right as far as problem solving bringing something interesting to the market having the support of the orthopedics now you have you have you you have your marketing strategy in place you have funding people, right? Now you're, now you want to build with people and create that culture. What was that early culture like? And did you, did you learn uh, things from it? Yeah. You know, I was a beneficiary again of, you know, experience in the past. When I was in my undergraduate um, years, I took a, a new product development course and my professor, Dr. Bart, was this guy who was just obsessed with mission. You know, how does one, how's mission different from vision and, um, how does one incorporate a mission into one's strategy? And how does our, how do you articulate it? How do you live it and breathe it? And had become one of the kind of the gurus of of you know kind of that space, mission and values and what have you. And he really kind of indoctrinated me into how important it is 
to articulate very clearly your your mission and your set of values. So MEND is something that we've done from day one, is have a core at the very center of what we call our values and virtues, um, a core mission that uh, that we live by, and that's what we drive towards. It's about betterment of societal health. And around that is things like courage and empathy and community and all those, those types of things. So um, it's nice to articulate something, um, but once, uh, but to really kind of bring it um, into one's you know, day-to-day life and, and culture and well-being, you have to then start to really um, to bake it into your into your organization and your processes. So things like actually, you know, recognizing people that are demonstrating the values that you've articulated. So we have a weekly, you know, we, we live by scrums, so we have weekly scrums, and I will very deliberately not only pull up the values and virtues in a slide on the screen um, regularly to say, hey guys, here's one of our values, empathy. Uh, let me talk about how you know X, Y, and Z actually demonstrated that this week and then celebrate them. So those are kind of little things, but then actually investing in, um, I tell everyone in the firm, guys, you own, you own the culture. It doesn't belong to me. Every one of you owns the company that you want to be a part of. And so the, it's incumbent on you and the onus is on you to define what company you want to be a part of. And so we actively ingest their recommendations and then actually begin to activate on this. We're a very inclusive culture. Um, we're a culture that, um, you know, prizes, uh, this is going to sound uh, like just rhetoric, but we really, really do value and prize people um, and, and having people own our journey. And so um, we actively solicit from them, you know, what is it that you want to see the company do more of, do less of, uh, and then start to bake that in and invest in our culture. Sometimes, you know, with culture, though, you know, you have this amazing talent, right, that you're interviewing them. You want them to be part of uh, part of uh, your company, your startup. And then you realize through the interview process or through meeting them, uh, you know, uh, quite a few times with or with other team members. I don't know how your interview process works. You, you realize that even though they're a phenomenal person as a talent, they are not a it's, there will be a culture clash and. And plus, the personality just doesn't match. Did you face anything like that? Oh, absolutely. And yeah, we, we get that where, you know, we had that recently where I had a little sidebar with one of my colleagues and said, you know, this person sounds amazing, but there's some vibe that I'm getting that um, there isn't a perfect sort of, you know, culture match here. And I'll tell you, Sabir, I will over-index every single day on personality and uh, the fit with culture than I will on the hard skills. Like hard skills are easier, easy to develop. And you can actually vector people into areas where they'll succeed. But if they've got the right attitude, attitude wins every single day. Um, got the right attitude and the right DNA and makeup, I'll take that over you know, hard skills any day of the week. Yeah, one of the things uh, people have heard me say you, you want the people in your group that if it's 11 p.m. and you are facing some kind of disaster in that company, they don't mind like being there and investing uh, that at 11 p.m. or 2 a.m. or the entire weekend because they believe in it. Not not that, oh, you know what? That's not part of my job. Uh, I, I clocked out at 5 p.m., you know. Yeah, and we, part, and we and we put a great deal of emphasis on you know life work balance and, and making sure people are healthy. We even have a, like a fatigue policy. You feel tired, take an hour. We want you performing your best. We want you rested. All those types of things. But it's people like like you said, um, I articulated well. It's if they're anchored in the same mission and purpose, and they really have embraced that as a core part of what they're looking to solve for, 
um, they're as eager and hungry at 11 p.m. to help solve that problem as you are. And I'm very fortunate that we've you know, got folks in the firm that do have that makeup. Uh, they love what we're building. They believe in it. Uh, and we won't go. There's nothing we wouldn't do for our clients and our, and our customers. We just, we just live and breathe making our clients happy. So every entrepreneur faces what people call, not me, I'll tell you what I call it, but what people call setbacks and failures. I call it nature and universe's way of teaching you a lesson, right? And you have to keep your eyes and ears open. So can you share a time or, or examples of where you faced a significant uh, a sort of a learning, <laughs> let's use my words, you know, learnings uh, in your business and how you recovered from it? Yeah, I mean, if you think about the thesis that I talked about, which, which we founded this company, which is, you know, nutrition matters to healing. It's, it's, it's integral to and fundamental to, to healing. You know, who's, who's with injured patients all the time? Physical therapists. And so very early on in my thesis, I thought, Jesus, I need, I need, this is a captive audience and a captive channel. What a way to go to market. If you've got a clinically valid product that enhances healing and PTs are with patients that need healing, there can be no more focused a business strategy than that. And so that was really my initial thinking is that that would be my go-to-market channel. Um, but what I learned very quickly was that while the clinical evidence was there and while, um, you know, it's a, it's a perfectly focused channel and the leadership of the physical therapy space really recognizes this, the clinicians themselves were allergic to products because they viewed it as selling. So for them, all they want to do is they're, what they're trained to do, which is deliver the manual therapy, use things like STEM and other modalities to treat the patient. As soon as you brought in a new product into the realm, uh, to them, it was uh, antithetical to, um, to what they're trained to do. So, um, so we, had to, you know, we had to manage through that. I, I fundamentally believe, because I've now spent time on the phone with the leaders at you know, uh, ATI and IV Rehab and other physical therapy practices who are very keen, keen to work with us and their leadership get it, but that the business model of PT will evolve just like it is in orthopedics and the rest of healthcare where things that move outcomes and enhance outcomes, whether it's, you know, product like MEND and a nutraceutical or it's, it's something else will become fundamental to their business model. So we've had to be patient with that. So we've kind of vectored away from that being a primary emphasis, something that we're working on a longer term strategy uh, towards that, uh, you know, instead of, hey, PT will be the immediate channel, we're looking at now as one to two years, PT will be one of our, you know, core channels of the business. And we're probably placing more emphasis on orthopedic surgery than we are PT. So now, you know, you're in the middle of this journey. How do you see uh, MEND, uh, how do you envision MEND um, growing in the next, um, let's say, I would hate to say three to five years because three to five years is a lifetime, gigantic lifetime for startups. But within the next uh, few years, how do you see uh, and, and envision uh, men growing? Yeah, thank you. We, we, and I'm very privileged um, that our pipeline for 23 is full, uh, meaning we've got the hospital saying, yes, we want to do this. We've got the contracts being drafted and coming in or executed. Uh, and so really, we're already we're already thinking about 2024 in terms of, you know, clients that we want to bring on and execute against. So, uh, you know, a big part of the emphasis this year, Sabira, is just about execution, executional excellence. If we just execute on existing contracts, we'll have, have had an enormously successful year and set the company up for very big things to come. 
but you know, it's now time for me to start thinking about, you know, what's next in terms of the roadmap of, you know, our innovation and our science and where that goes. So we've got a core value proposition that's really resonating in the marketplace. You've got clients signing up to say, we want to implement this. That's fantastic. Now, how do I think about the growth in that? How do we scale that business to something that becomes very, very significant? You've got a roadmap for that. But then it's about how does a business now start thinking about innovation and science so that we can you know, be positioned for the next 10, 20 years and not just the next you know, kind of two to three years. Now, uh, just kind of moving into, because we're talking about healthcare industry, right? Things move slow, but I've seen amazing in, uh, advancements over, over even my, in my lifetime, right? When I was, uh, I'm 50 now, I just celebrated my 50th birthday. Yes. Yeah. So um, thank you. When I was 16, 17, uh, I was suffering from duodenal ulcer, you know, so I had ulcer in my duodenum, yeah. right? And at that time, the solution was a bunch of pills that you used to take, like Tagamet and Prilosec and all sorts of things like that to control the acidity so that you don't feel the pain of, of ulcers, you know, and that was the solution for it. And then I think I was maybe 21, 22. They came up with that special cocktail because they saw that ulcer was some sort of a bacteria, right? You take the cocktail for one week, gone. Unbelievable. And I've never felt better since then, you know. And I, I've, and not, it has not returned. Nothing has happened. And that, that that's more of a personal story. Uh, very recently, the entire globe ex- experienced a pandemic, and then the scientists and, and you know working in their labs came up with. Uh, you know, this this vaccine that has, uh, you know, that not, does not necessarily cure COVID, but at least lessens the problems of, of COVID symptoms and stuff like that, you know. And and recently I was reading that um, there might be a, a um, some sort of a, either a vaccine or, or a pill or something like that related to cancer. I think there has been quite a lot of inv- advancements in diabetes also that, that, that it's better controlled now. So I see it advancing, even though it may feel it's slow, but I believe that I, I think it's tremendous to see those kinds of things in my lifetime. It's tremendous. So how do you, I mean, you are in that industry. So how do you keep uh, on top of these advancements and how do you pivot to, um, you know, so that men is actually relevant to all of those kind of changes that are happening in, in, in the industry? Yeah, we're so, you know, I've, I've lived in innovation framework. So, you know, one of the things you do in innovation is think about, you know, um, what we call horizons, so horizon one, horizon two, horizon three, right? So what is core to your business today? What's on, what's coming? And so we've actually, and I want us to be one of the smartest, uh, you know, startups and, and firms in the industry. So we have an internal newsletter that we have developed that goes out, uh, we call it the scoop. And it's a consolidation and a summary of the most important, relevant things that all I want every one of our staffers and our investors and what have you to know. So I, I, I encourage everyone every single you know time it comes out to make sure that we're well read on that. And then we have a disciplined innovation portfolio that is you know, we capture ideas whether it's through open innovation or internally, and they can be Horizon One, Horizon Two, Horizon Three. Uh, and we systematically take those through a whole, you know, disruptive innovation kind of pr- funnel and process to evaluate those and then move those the ideas that we want into into our funnel. So we have a disciplined process that we, you know, going to go through on on new ideas, both from a learning perspective, but then capturing ideas and moving them through as kind of a stage gate uh, evaluation. Uh, you know, we're um, 
we're facing really, really big challenges as a as a as a country. So we're spending somewhere on the order of five trillion dollars on healthcare. What we do a really good job of in our society is getting you ill through your manufactured food, sedentary lifestyle, stressors, et cetera. And then you know, 90% plus of our healthcare dollars go towards pulling out the scalpel and fixing that thing that's, you know, the ulcer or the thing that's broken. So I think the big shift that has to be that has to come severe is moving from a sick care model, uh, which is where all of our efforts are to prevention. That's going to be, I think, the big paradigm shift is from acute care to to a lifespan, right? And the lifespan includes prevention, uh, a prevention model and a lifespan model. We ensure that you don't get sick in the first place, but then you have the right foundation for quality of life because we're all living longer. But to one of the things that's happened through the trajectory is uh, the fact that we're living longer doesn't mean we're living a proportion of our life any healthier. So we're actually living the same amount of years in proportion sick and ill as we were when we were living a few years. Yeah. So that means you're just living more years being sick. Miserable. <laughs> Miserable. And so lifespan is um, is great, but we want well spent, right? So we wanna we want to ensure that you're living as well as you can as, as 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 you get older. So I think those are the fundamental shifts that have to occur because we are gonna live longer and we want to have a shift to a prevention model so we don't get sick in the first place. I mean, as far as like technology goes, I've seen phenomenal things on whether it's YouTube or Discovery Channel, right? Where it's remote surgeries. Now AI has become a very hot topic right now. I don't know how that plays into healthcare. Uh, I mean, you could ask ChatGPT about act like my, you know, act like Dr. House on House MD, you know, <laughs> and and tell me, diagnose me. And then it actually, it, it does a good job of like insulting you and, and being egotistical and stuff like that. Uh, but technology, I, I believe that uh, I think it has advanced like, uh, you know, there could be a, a surgeon uh, doing a surgery somewhere in, in, in a remote place, but they need their help from that, that, that uh, you know, experienced eye from, let's say, New York. You know, New York hospital systems are world known, right? Or California or Texas or something like that. And they are, they can be part of those surgeries, even though they're, they're uh, 3000 miles away, you know? Uh, so how do you see like technology playing a role in the healthcare industry and impacting your business, you know, specifically? Yeah. In our, in our case, you know, a lot of the innovation kind of, if you look back to the historic last decades, it's coming into kind of the, the techniques and tools of the actual surgery itself. So, you know, the x-ray, the, the robotic machines, the scalpels and all that kind of stuff. And what you'll hear um, you know, a lot of the kind of the experts in let's just call it orthopedic surgery or any any type of surgical environment is a lot of the innovation that's going to come is going to be in kind of the perioperative care. So everything that I talked about earlier, the stuff that comes before and the stuff that comes after, and how do we ensure that we get the best outcomes from from those modifying those things? So um, one of the areas of innovation is going to come is this whole notion of hospital at home. How do we care for you in a remote care environment? We're really, we're really helping to uh, move the key biomarkers and the underlying risk factors to a place where we can reduce and minimize that risk. That's where a lot of the innovation is happening today. It's in patient experience and the modalities and the care that happens outside of the acute care environment. So you're going to hear a lot more about hospital at home um, and remote care 
and how do we ensure that we've got you know the right tools and capabilities to to make that a world class capability within the U.S. I think uh, the pandemic did help that process, right? So more people became aware of, even the doctors became more aware of telehealth, right? That they can deliver uh, quality um, healthcare over Zoom, over, uh, you know, those kinds of, I'm saying Zoom, but it, whatever the equivalent is for that doctor, because every hospital system has their own version of Zoom, right? Uh, for virtual telehealth meetings. And while more more um, things that require hands-on care, then those appointments can come in. So it actually helps the doctor to move from one appointment to the next. And also it helps the patient not to travel to wherever the doctor is, because sometimes commutes are 40, 50 minutes or or even longer if you're taking, especially in New York, if you are going from Flushing to uh, yeah. you know some town, somewhere downtown or uptown or something, it's, it, that, that eats up your whole day basically. Yeah, and it goes beyond kind of just the, you know, the Zoom visit. So it's all about, you know, the, the, it's the diagnostics capabilities, it's the real-time remote patient monitoring. So our patients are wearing both Fitbits. We have also given them a blood pressure cuff and we're remotely taking all this bio data to keep a real-time, you know, eye on them, which allows us, it gives, it allows us to give the physician asynchronous data that they've never really had before. I'll just give you a case example. In one of the, you know, the pilots that we did, a patient was, uh, expected to have a very good outcome based on just their profile coming into surgery. And then they actually had an inferior, well, less than superior outcome that was, that, that was expected. And then what we were able to tell the physician is this patient is actually taking way more steps than they're supposed to be taking at this point in their recovery. And so that excess load was actually resulting in you know, more inflammation and a poor, uh, poor outcome. The doctor never had that information before. And so it's this new kind of world of, you know, remote diagnostics and monitoring and the ability to actually do more with a patient in a remote environment that wasn't possible before. That's going to play a much bigger role going forward. Definitely. So Apple Watch is a good thing then. Yes, it can be. It can be. I'm a not very promoting good. Apple Watch. It could be any watch, anything that that actually monitors you on a, on a regular basis. You know, it can be a great thing if you use well, you know, use correctly. So one of the challenges I see, you know, because. In other businesses that I see, when it comes to like scale and growth, you know, uh, can you get more SEO? Yes. Can you do Facebook? Can you do Google? Yes, yes. Get more influencers? Yes, right. But in your case, when it comes to how do you how would you balance? Because the challenge I see in your in Mend is one is uh, scaling and growing, right? That's your business goal. That one of the goals that you have, and then while you're doing that, how do you how do you continue to provide a, an amazing level of like patient patient care right at the same at the same level so how do you balance those two things because uh, they may they may be at odds at, at each other you know either you, you something has has to give you know in that scenario yeah it's an outstanding question it's a conversation that I've already started to have with our, our investors is that I believe we'll be looking at a scenario in the next six months where we we really think about hey we have an opportunity where you know another 10 15 hospitals want to do what we're doing because they want to they want to implement the best solutions and they want to make sure that they're at least on par with their peers if not doing better than their peers. Uh, you know, how do we manage through that that growth trajectory to to ensure severe, uh, which is, you know, what you're really talking about, which is the quality of our care doesn't get compromised. And so we're working very hard on our playbooks, right? So that playbooks, the measurement of the quality of the care, the analytics and the data to ensure that our nurses, our care staff 
are meeting our threshold. So there's a certification process, there's a measurement process, there's a feedback loop. Uh, and that playbook is what we want to industrialize. In fact, I skipped a call to join this podcast today that calls industrializing our operations. And industrializing our operations is one of the ROKR work streams where we're looking at how do we really scale this business in a way that is hardened, that we've got an industrial process that can ensure that we've got the quality in place because we will not survive as a business unless we've got top-notch care quality. And so that will continue to be a you know very, very big emphasis for the firm. And we, won't, we will be very deliberate about taking on jobs where we can ensure that our Patients, first and foremost, are raving about it, but then the doctors are raving about it because their patients are raving about it. So that's critical to our success. And we will be very deliberate about investing in quality. So how do you, you know, what parts of the business do you need to focus on that could be automated, right? That, that, that now you have infinite scalability, hopefully, right, because of automation. And what parts of it have the human element that means that you have to increase your payroll in order to, and, and training and all of those kinds of things to get people up to speed. And then you need people to, to grow that. And that might be a slower path to, to that part of the growth. Yeah, so our platform is, is AI, machine learning enabled and supported, but we have a whole care staff of nurses and dietitians and other care providers interfacing with patients. And so it is about learning over time. I, I can't tell you um, that we have all the answers today, but we're going to learn over time on which things we think can be automated. We want to be very careful because patients like interacting with real people. They don't want to interact mm-hmm. with bots. Uh, we, we, we know that and we've learned that over time. Uh, that's not new insight. And so we want to be very, very careful about what we automate, but also have, you know, again, strength to the scalability and the business model side of things. And so we'll learn, we'll learn over time on what, what parts, obviously if there are things that are, are critical to care, there's a, you know, a, a risky situation, patient's blood pressure is high, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, that's the kind of thing that you want a real human interfacing with the patient over to have that conversation. But there are there are less trivial things or less serious things like um, I need help arranging, you know, transportation from the hospital, right? That's something that we can get more intelligent about uh, with automation and help, help the patient to do. So uh, we'll learn and get smarter over that over time. Definitely. So you've had a phenomenal uh, journey, you know, and I ask every guest of mine, what, what is your, given the fact that you started this in, in uh, during the pandemic, and this is probably year four now, right, of, yeah. of, uh, of the year startup, four, yeah. what is your number one $100,000 uh, expert insight into this journey that you could share as an advice to aspiring entrepreneurs? They, they could be in healthcare, they could they, they don't have to be in healthcare, but what, what's what's your deepest insight uh, that it's you could the, share? It's the thing that I tell everyone. This is going to be the you know, the wildest roller coaster ride that you've ever taken, and it's going to be a grind unlike that you've you know ever experienced. Um, and and all these success stories we hear are not overnight successes. Believe me, a lot of blood, sweat, and tears and difficult nights uh, went into getting to uh, you know where uh, that entrepreneur is today. Like you said, Elon Musk was. You know, sleeping on the floor and in his office, and then uh, there were times when he thought the the, the business would fail, and you inevitably fail, fail, you know, face those those situations. So, um, I keep coming back to being really anchored in in your pers- in in your mission and purpose, and having a deep love for the problem that you're trying to solve, because that will take you through the darkest hours and the most difficult days and the grind of of, of doing this. I know it sounds like a kind of a cliche. 
uh, cliched piece of advice to give, but that is the core, I think, of every entrepreneur that that succeeds is uh, just a willingness that when things get difficult to keep your demeanor and calm uh, and just be persistent about solving you know, whatever challenge you're facing because better days will come. Uh, and the better days start to accumulate into momentum and then this magical thing starts to happen. I call it gravitational forces. Uh, momentum and gravitational forces begin to take over and all of a sudden success becomes easier and easier and easier. You know, they say that you know your first million is the hardest to make, but then it seems for some reason or other, after you make that first million, it becomes a little easier. So uh, persist through the, the difficult early days and, and things do get easier. Yeah, well said, well said, Isaiah. Uh, thank you for being on the show and thank you yeah. for sharing your incredible journey uh, with Mend and, and we wish you the best of luck uh, with the rest of your journey. Well, thank you for having me and thank you for doing this because there's nothing yeah, nothing more important than sharing with each other on what contributes to success. So I appreciate you having me. Thank you. And thank you, audience, for tuning in. And we have more amazing guests coming up on This Week with Sabir, uh, you know, similar to and similar to uh, Zaya uh, Syed here. And we really thank him for being here. Thanks for having me.